I mean, I'm, I'm working, my main project at the moment is this book, Palladium, which is coming out in May, um, my Istanbul thriller, and I'm doing the kind of preparation for that and promotion of it. Um, so I'm very much hoping that lots of people will read Palladium. In this episode, I'm talking to the author, Lee Turner, who also wrote under the name Robert Pym. Hi, Lee. Hi. How are you I'm, this morning? I'm fine, and you? Good to see you. It's lovely to see you also, and uh, you're in the UK at the moment. That's right. I'm in Highgate in my writing lair, and um, I've uh, been back here for Christmas, and then I had a few family issues, so I uh, stayed on here a bit longer, and I'm coming back to Vienna next week. Oh, wonderful. But you say you are in your writing uh, lair. Is that always where you write, or do you write in Vienna as well? Oh, I write in Vienna as well. I write everywhere I go. I always have my little laptop with me, uh, which we're talking on now. And its main feature is that it's small, so I can take it with me everywhere I go. So you don't have to have a certain setting, you know, that you are stuck into, oh, this is my environment where I write. So you just go and, and do it everywhere. Well, it's a bit of both. Sometimes you have reference works. For example, I'm doing this book at the moment, uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to Diplomacy, and that's based on my diplomatic career and what lessons I learned from it. And so in that case, I really need my papers from the past years, so I need to have access to that. So that I prefer to do in Vienna where I perform my things. Oh, I see. Okay. But now I, um, first of all, I, I uh, have to say Thank you again for this wonderful picture you gave me in on the balcony of the embassy oh. when you were ambassador and that you were, that you were part of this project. Um, uh, that was really, uh, you were one of the first ambassadors that agreed to do it, which I found wonderful that you, that you could immediately understand um, what this is all about. And I never knew yeah. at, at that time, I didn't know you were writing, but I... Then now, later, when I discovered you were a writer, I thought, well, maybe this is why you understood uh, artists, you know, that because you are one yourself. <laughs> well, I think, I think uh, all, all diplomats, as well as all artists, have to be em- empathetic. They have to see things from the other person's point of view. Uh, if you don't and can't do that, it's going to be more difficult, not impossible, of course, for you to be a, a good diplomat or a good artist. And... So I know when we heard about your project to take photographs of people during lockdown, I thought that was a very original idea. And it was fitting for the time we were in. That was, I think, during the first lockdown. And it was also um, a fun idea. And it gave everybody the chance to participate in something. I thought it uh, it was brilliant. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And it also started a conversation, I think, you know, because it was something to talk about and and to, to, you know, to ask a bit more questions about, which I have been doing for the past year and so. But now yeah. um, now I'm asking you questions because what I find so interesting about you is that you're, uh, you have a blog post as well. You just, you not uh, don't have just your, your books that you're writing, but you have a blog post. And I went through uh, some of the posts that you've written um, and uh, when I initially, when I realized you had a blog, I thought it would be 
really about di diplomatic life, you know, just about that sort of thing and, and maybe more politics and so. But you really write about real stuff, you know, about, <laughs> about life. Not horror. Yeah, no, about life and about uh, experiences you had and just real life experiences, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I aim for the blog to be interesting. That's its main thing. It's my rleeturner.com blog that I now have. And um, I've recently rebranded it because one of the things you mentioned is that when we did that photo shoot, you didn't know I was a writer. And as a diplomat, I was always very proper in not um, talking too much about my writing because I didn't want any suggestion that I was misusing my position to sell books. Um, uh, but now that I've retired in September 2021, I have a bit more latitude in that sense. And in the blog, up until September 2021, I never, ever mentioned the fact that I was um, a diplomat either. So the two sides were hermetically sealed from each other. Um, but the aim of the blog is partly to talk about my books and my writing. And so you'll find maybe one in every three or four or five uh, blog post is about that. And then the rest is about stuff that interests me. And I have a section called, for example, uh, gender issues. I have a section about uh, existential issues. I have a section about book reviews and film reviews. I have a section on P.G. Woodhouse. I have a section on the books of Ian Fleming, James Bond books. So there's a very broad range. And some of it is about my experiences, for example, in Russia. In those early blogs, I didn't mention the fact I was there as a diplomat, but I had some pretty hairy experiences. Um, some of it is about my experiences in the US. Um, and I'm hoping that this is like a smorgasbord or a, a broad palette of different things that will appeal to people. But I, I'm always looking for, for feedback. And if there's more of something you'd like to see or any other readers would like to see, I'd be, it'd be great to hear from you. Well, what what uh, the one that I read yesterday was about you being a um, a house dad. I don't know how you would call it in a in a in a in a other way, but but I, I found that so fascinating because actually I was a, a house mum and I was uh, home educating my children, and what you wrote there also about. Um, uh, people asking you, why don't you do a job? Why don't you get a job? And and that was also that people asked me, even though I was a woman, you know, they would say, well, why don't you put the children in school and get a job? And um, and that I found fascinating because I never realized that on the other side, you know, a man would also get that. Yes, as I, as I say in that piece, I think... Um... I have two pieces about that. One is about my experience of when I stopped work for four years in Berlin as a relatively senior diplomat. And my uh, then wife took over my job, actually, in the embassy. And I spent four years bringing up the children. And most women uh, thought this was great. But many men seemed to feel threatened by it and were very critical and uh, made snide remarks, how the mighty have fallen so you're the houseboy now, are you, sort of thing. And it is, I mean, this was 20 years ago. Perhaps things have changed a bit. Uh, I think many things have not changed. And there is a, a normative pressure in every society 
I think that people should behave in a certain way, and it's stronger in some societies than others. Of course, uh, we're lucky living in uh, Western democracies that the pressure is arguably less, but it's it's still there. And people who see somebody doing something a bit different sometimes feel the urge to step in and say, why are you doing that? You should be doing things the way I do them. Uh, yeah. I think it's natural. It's natural. And um, you may feel uncomfortable when people make these comments or you may have thick skin, uh, but you better be ready for it. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I think it is because it's different than uh, some people are just not comfortable with it. But now I was thinking about all this and then I and, and I wondered because you grew up in Africa. Uh, part of your life you grew up in Lesotho which, uh, well we have one thing in common we both grew up in in, in Africa so uh -huh. uh, yeah. <laughs> and and your childhood there must have been very different to a childhood say in England for example yes I, I am almost uh, a representative uh, of uh, a way of life which has ceased to exist which is that um, I was conceived in Nigeria, actually, in um, uh, the late 50s, and my parents at that time were, uh, my, my father was an academic, and my mother also worked in the university, and when we went to Lesotho in 1964, it was still a colony, so people from the UK were going there to, to work. My parents were ideologically motivated to try and help people. They couldn't be missionaries because they had enough missionaries and they, they thought it would be a very good other thing to do to take part in the education system um, of African countries and spent many years doing that. And you're right, it gives you a different outlook on life. If you, um, I'm, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm writing this book, uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to Diplomacy, which starts off um, when I started work in 1979, when I finished at university in Cambridge. And um, it was very striking that many people who have grown up overseas go on to become diplomats. And when I first started work in the de Department of the Environment and then in the Treasury, I used to really enjoy the work. The work was, and the colleagues were just as good as um, they are in the foreign office the work particularly was very interesting but when you look out of your window and you think if i'm really successful in my career i will be in another window of this same building that didn't excite me as much as the prospect of being a diplomat and not knowing in 10 years which country of the world i might be in or what kind of work i might be doing that was a very thrilling prospect for me and it could be that um the growing up in different countries played a role in that. Mm. And uh, how much do you think that played also an, is an influence in the way you write? I, I think it's very important. I, I was thinking about this. Where, where do you get your ideas from? Yeah. It's an, it's an age-old question. Um, in some ways, you do get ideas from where you live. So, it, for example, um, in May 2022, I'm very excited that right now, actually, I've, I've just got the cover art for my new book, Palladium, which is an international thriller set in Istanbul. The cover art is fantastic. I'm going to be doing a, a blog about it on Saturday, a, a reveal, as they say. Yeah. Um, and um, that book was very much inspired by being in Istanbul. 
and the extraordinary history of the place and um, also reading that I did. did. I, I love novelists like um, uh, John le Carre or Dan Brown and I also um, uh, like action heroes like Jason Bourne, for example. So I wrapped all of that up into an Istanbul thriller. On the other hand, um, I often think the, the best source of fiction ideas is other people. So um, mm -hmm. one, one of my um, books is called Seven Hotel Stories. In fact, I've written 11 of them, but the first seven yeah. are, um, are contained in this book, Seven Hotel Stories. And if I get to number to 14, I'll publish a second volume, I expect. Yeah. And in that case, I, I know a lot of people who work in hotels. My partner is a hotel general manager. In fact, I, I write the stories for her as a, as a birthday present every year. Oh, I see. Um, and I did one when we first met. I thought, what on earth am I going to give her? And um, so I, uh, I was writing a lot. So I wrote a little short story about a, a very beautiful and brilliant hotel manager um, who doesn't put up with any nonsense from male guests. I heard so much about what male guests get up to in hotels. And this, oh, okay. <laughs> this Ms. N, as she's called, to preserve her anonymity, she really doesn't put up with nonsense from her male guests and she takes strong action. They're kind of feminist black comedies, as I, as I mentioned. Yeah. And I remember once I was at a, at a party with some hoteliers, people who work in hotels, and I heard two stories. One of them was um, about uh, a woman who had come into a very posh London hotel wearing a big barber jacket one of these big hunting jackets, which have very big pockets inside. And she'd gone to the reception and reached into her pocket and pulled out a pheasant and said, could you prepare this for me? Um, and I thought, that's a great story. And then another person, another hotelier, told one of his favorite stories, which he'll tell you if you meet him. And um, this was about how difficult it is to know what people do and to get, keep the conversation going. And he'd been at a reception and um, there was a very distinguished looking woman there. And he felt he should know who she was, but he couldn't quite remember. So he asked um, a qualifying question as, as one does. He said, oh, how are you? She said, I'm very well. He, he was frantically trying to work out who she was. He said, um, and how's your husband? Uh, what, what's he doing now? It seemed a safe question. And the woman looked at him and replied, yeah, same thing. He's, he's still the King of Spain. Um, and and so these these two little anecdotes I thought were were very neat. And, yeah. And if you read my if you read my book, um, it's one of the um, seven hotel stories called The Swedish Woman. It's a short story. Yeah. Um, it's about this mysterious person who turns up at a hotel and nobody knows quite who she is. And she goes up to the front desk, um, and it turns out she's somebody very important. And um, she goes up to the front desk and pulls a, actually a rabbit out of her pocket and asks them to prepare it. Um, and these are obviously direct ideas from people that I was talking to. So, uh, you know, that's another really great uh, source of ideas. But do you do you write the story um, then, or do you just make the story up uh, then from that point, or do you take some of the the truth that that happened then? Well, it's, it's, it's always a mixture. So um, there's, there's part of the story is driven by the characters. So yeah. in the case of the hotel stories, there are two main characters, which are Ms. N herself. And then she has a, a, a beautiful 
um, and brilliant but not very well educated um, assistant called Tatiana, who actually narrates the stories. It's a bit like um, Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes. Oh, okay. um, and some of the stories actually are whodunits. And um, because I know those characters really well, as soon as I start writing a new hotel story, the, the characters take on a life of their own. And okay. there, there's only certain things they can do. Uh, you know that Ms. N is not going to do um, uh, anything that's sneaky and underhand because she just that would be out of character for her. And, and you know that um, if some men are doing something which is arrogant or nasty, that they will be punished for it. So, you know, all of this um, yeah. follows on quite naturally. But you're right. Um, at the same time, there's just imagination. I mean, my, my, I, the first book that I've published under my own name, because I'm just shifting them over at the moment. I originally, until September 2021, I was publishing everything under the name of Robert Pym, which was my writing pseudonym to kind of conceal the fact that Lee Turner was a novelist. Um, but now I've retired. That, I don't need to do that. Yeah. Um, I've, I've published the first book. Uh, as Lee Turner, which is called Eternal Life. And Eternal Life is actually a, um, a science fiction thriller, or you could say speculative fiction. It's not kind of spaceships. It's just imagining how our society might develop given advances in medical technology and also people's obsession with living longer. So we're 200 years in the future and society is in a terrible state as the result of the fact that some people can live forever um, by kind of buying voluntarily life off other people. Um, so there's no poverty. Um, everybody has enough to eat. If anybody is poor, they can just sell a bit of life to somebody else and uh, get lots and lots of money. So it seems that everything should be perfect, but of course it's not. And so that speculative fiction really does spring from my imagination, although Again, I was very interested in medical technology, you know, the technology of trying to make people live longer, how, longer, how they alter their uh, telomeres, the, the, their cell structure to try and um, slow down aging. There's lots of things. And I often meet people. I met a, a very important ambassador the other day who was very keen on living longer. And I thought, yes, that really shows that we're on the right track here. Yeah. And um, so the you do a lot of research then uh, when you write these types of yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah. no, really. Um, but that must I mean, be very interesting then. I mean, you must learn a lot then um, to, to write this, you know? I mean, additionally. I love doing it. I love doing it. So, um, I mean, to give you another example, um, often I'm inspired by some research I do. So... Um, when I lived in Berlin, in fact, when I was um, not working for, or not doing paid employment for four years from 2002 to 2006, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't say there's anything heroic about this. Um, millions and millions of women in particular have brought up children rather than doing paid employment. And, uh, um, you know, I was just a, just a man doing the same thing. Um, and the children were already... Um, uh, late, you know, early school age, so they were on yeah. school most of the time. So I wanted to write a novel, and I had the idea of doing a novel about Berlin. Mm -hmm. And one of my jobs that I'd had had been as a um, in a counterterrorism department of the Foreign Office, where I was head of ops, which meant I was in charge of counterterrorism operations in the event that 
um, uh, a terrorist incident should arise uh, for the Foreign Office. So we did a lot of exercises and um, traveled all over Britain and overseas, exercising police forces to see how, what would happen in the event of a counter-terrorist um, operation. For example, we worked with the um, uh, Special Air Service, the military, and with different agencies, and the Home Office and Scotland Yard and so on to, to simulate what would happen in the event of a, of a terrorist hostage-taking incident, for example. And then when I was in Berlin, um, I got to know a fellow football fan, um, a chap called Thomas Faltmann, a good friend of mine now, and, um, and he worked in the Reichstag, in the, in the Bundestag, in the um, Parliament building in Berlin. And he said to me one day, do you, do you fancy doing a tour? We do tours of the, um, of the building. And as you know, it's, um, it's a beautiful building, completely rebuilt by Norman Foster um, from what was basically a ruin after the Second World War. And we went and had a look at this building and we went in the tunnels that go under the building. Um, wow. And we looked at the um, graffiti from of Red Army soldiers who um, wrote on the walls when they stormed the building in 1945. We looked at the rooms in the back where the MPs sit and everywhere there's glass and light and visitors on the roof. Um, and I thought this would be a great setting for a yeah. um, And so I wrote what became Blood Summit, which is um, actually the first um, novel I published. It's a Berlin thriller, another international thriller. Um, and it's all based on my experience dealing with counterterrorism issues. So, you know, when a, when a, uh, a member of the SAS turns up, I, I know what kind of things they're likely to say. And when, mm -hmm. a, when, a, when, a, when American special forces try to end the siege, I know what kind of things they're going to be doing too. Mm -hmm. um, and you can inject realism into the story, as well as, of course, um, liberal measures of, um, of making it up. No, well, I saw, I didn't read the book, but I saw all the reviews on the book and I was wondering actually, how did you, I didn't know that you had this experience of, um, or, or, you know, that you, that you had the background, but I was wondering how did you get to that idea of the story in that specific building, but now it makes, makes total sense for me. Yes, um, yes, you, you tend to see something and it just lights a little fire and then you think, yeah. how could I, how could I use that? And um, just, you have to stay alert really to opportunities. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm also writing so some way down the line. I mean, I'm, I'm working, my main project at the moment is this book Palladium, which is coming out in May, um, my Istanbul thriller. And I'm doing the kind of preparation for that and promotion of it. Um, so I'm very much hoping that lots of people will read Palladium. And then, um, I'm also writing my Hitchhiker's Guide to Diplomacy, which is a kind of manual um, of ideas about diplomacy based on my career, which is going to come out later this year or early next year. So that's taking up a lot of my time. But um, and I'm writing uh, my uh, blog. Do you, do you go back to, say, say when you wrote in Berlin, of, for example, do you go back to that building and, or, or when you, in, in Istanbul, do you go back to, to just revisit and just think, um, you know, because if you, if you like in Berlin, if you just went in the building once, do you remember everything? Um, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very good question. Um, 
sometimes you do make special trips to try and have a good look around. Mm -hmm. um, on that occasion, I, I did this visit and I wrote it all up. I made my notes, which I, I do a lot. Um, and I never went back for many years until actually I'd finished the novel. Um, but um, about two years ago, it was I think um, late 2009 before coronavirus, I had the opportunity to go to Berlin again and um, made some promotional videos outside the Reichstag, which was oh, yeah. great. I saw one, and, yeah. And, and um, I also called on a, on a um, chap who, uh, a different person who worked in the parliament and he was kind enough to show me again around the Reichstag and I was able to check all the different bits of my book. Um, but I, I remember um, <clears throat> William Boyd, who's a very successful writer, once saying, um, research was overrated, he said. Mm -hmm. um, he said um, uh, he'd written a book about a place that he'd never been to. And many people had written into him saying this was the best, most evocative description of this place they'd ever seen. He must have lived there. Really? Yes. Um, and uh, I've read another book, um, what's he called, who writes the Sharp novels, um, name's gone out of my head, but um, Bernard Cornwell, who, um, who says, look, if, if you visit such and such a fort in India and you find that there isn't a door where I said there was a door, please don't get in touch with me because I have to mix up facts and fiction. Um, but he said, um, in the way of Chekhov's gun, um, you, you know, they say in a Chekhov play, if, if there is a gun on the wall, it will be used, otherwise it wouldn't be there. And ah. he said, if I am having a chase through a fort in India um, <clears throat> and somebody ducks into a door to hide from somebody who's chasing them, I have to have described that door earlier. I can't just make it up on the spur of the moment, otherwise it doesn't feel realistic. So I think there's always that mixture of, of drawing on your direct experience and then interpreting that to make it as fun a read as you can if you're aiming for a fun read, which I usually am. Yeah, and it's also that creative freedom that you have. Yes, no, I love it. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Indeed, indeed. But but now I want to ask you the the writing, the love for writing. Were you in when you were in school? Did you do good essays? And was it something that you from then on started doing? Uh, I guess all of us have written um, essays and stories in school. Mm -hmm. uh, I always loved doing it. Um, for many years, um, I didn't do much fiction writing. I think I was triggered really by two things. Actually, when I first started work, I um, in the Foreign Office in, in 1983, there was a competition um, to write a story about diplomatic life. And I wrote a perhaps not very good story uh, and submitted it and I didn't win. Um, but that kind of got the creative juices flowing. And then very dully and boringly, when, um, when the British Embassy in Vienna got its first word processor, which was about 1985 or 1986, um, I thought this was fantastic. I thought, wow, you can write on it. And unlike a typewriter, the words don't get printed immediately. They're, you can store them and edit them and then print them later. And I thought, wow, that'll make writing a novel really easy, which was completely wrong. It doesn't make it any easier at all. But um, that's when I started, started writing my first novel. 
So you don't write handwritten uh, notes and so on. They're all on the computer. Actually, I do. I do. If you um, if you look on my um, on my AliTurner.com blog, um, I've written quite a lot about how to write, how to write fiction, and how to write. And and one of the big questions, which <clears throat> different people do different things, there's no right answer, mm. is whether to write directly on your computer using the keyboard, or whether to write in manuscript. Mm. And you know, as I say, there's no right answer. But I write most of my fiction, and particularly my when I'm really doing a first draft of something that's important, I write it in manuscript. Okay. I have nice A4 notebooks of very nice quality paper, and I write on that using a um, fountain pen. I've got it here somewhere. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I use a fountain pen um, in one color, and I write it on this nice paper. And then um, as a next stage, I go through it again with a different color pen, and I amend it a lot. And often that's when I put in the best jokes and um, I have the best sort of turns of phrase. Um, so that's like a first edit. And then after I've done that, I type it into the computer and, um, and there I might edit it a bit more and it will be edited many times more later on. You have to have a balance between editing and writing new stuff, otherwise you'll never write any new stuff. But um, I, I always write my first drafts in manuscript and I love doing that. Mm -hmm. So. Um Will there be a book um, that is set in Vienna? Because ah, I've been in Vienna for a very long time. I have been in Vienna for a very long time, yes. Um, yeah, well, there's there's two answers to that. One is that um, my book, uh, Eternal Life, this speculative um, thriller I, I wrote, um, the last 20% of that is actually set in Vienna, um, oh. including the UN city in Vienna and um, various scenes in central Vienna. So that's, that's part of it. And then I'm also writing um, a trilogy of um, what I call my foreign office sex comedies, which are um, about a really awful diplomat who is a man who's married to a really brilliant diplomat who's a woman. Um, and it's about their relationship and the tangles that this man, Angus, gets into um, because he's not always a very good man. Um, and he's always a bit insecure and thrashes about trying to do the right thing. And in in the trilogy, I've written the first two and a half novels. And the, the first one uh, is set in London and Berlin. Um, second one is set in Berlin. And the third one um, is set in Vienna. Um, okay. I don't think it'll be, it'll be finished for um, a year or two yet because mm -hmm. I'm working on other things at the moment. But um, I have great hopes for my trilogy of um, uh, foreign office novels, which I, I think will set the foreign office in a very good light, um, oh, okay. albeit, albeit sometimes um, making fun of diplomats mm. and their, their foibles, um, but also presenting diplomats as human beings. I mean, people, people think diplomats are sort of all upper class um, white men um, with a stiff upper lip and uh, starched collars. And this is not true at all. Um, there has always, or there has until the last uh, 20 or 30 years, been uh, too many uh, white men in the Foreign Office, but that's changing fast. Um, actually, the ambassadors in all of our G7 posts now are women, as are the ambassadors to, for example, the uh, UN in New York and uh, uh, to Beijing and 
many other important posts. Um, and then where the Foreign Office is slowly getting more um, people from ethnic minorities, they have targets on trying to do more of that. So the character of the Foreign Office is changing, but also um, it was never full of dull people. They have always been interesting characters and there has always been um, amongst the best diplomats, a, a kind of fondness for foibles. So, um, okay. um, you know, eccentric characters um, who um, have eccentric ideas and live eccentric lives have always had their place there. And I think it's a rich environment for writing comedies or comedy thrillers really is what I'm, uh, these, these books are. Um, and they're a lot of fun. But are they then based on real people you know? Heavens no. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, people often ask me that. There's um, in Blood Summit. There's a there's a character called Jason Short, who is the boss of the hero. The hero is called Helen Gale, and yeah. she's responsible for security at this summit. So obviously, there's a bit of me and Helen Gale, and um, her boss is called Jason Short, who is indeed a, a rather short man, whose idea of looking good is to make everybody else look bad, and he has long thinning hair. I say like an aging rock star and a huge selection of fitted suits and silk ties that he's very proud of. And um, he just is such a swine. And people say to me that, that Jason Short, you know, he reminds me so much of so-and-so and so-and-so. <laughs> I had a boss like that. And um, so it's, uh, wow. people always wonder, you know, uh, who is this? And uh, indeed the, the constellation of, um, in these, these three uh, foreign office comedies that are somewhere in the future of, um, a man who's married to a much more brilliant woman. Um, many people have said, oh, you know, is that so-and-so? Or did you get your inspiration from so-and-so? Um, and of course, every character you write has in it bits of people that you know, um, and or bits of people that you've, uh, you've witnessed, some of them you know, um, you know, maybe Petra Sittig will be in some future um, some future novel, who knows? Um, some innovative uh, photographer and artist will, will creep in. Um, and you just use the material you've yeah. got. And I think it's, it's great when you have um, elements of real people in your characters because mm. uh, it makes them realistic and fun. Yeah, no, I, I can, but I look forward to reading those three. Um, <laughs> they're, gonna be, they're gonna be great. Yeah, <laughs> but now um, the the name Robert Pym that you used all the time. Where did you get what what where did you get on that name? Yeah, so um, what happened was that until two thousand fourteen, I wrote under my own name, and then in two thousand fourteen, um, I was uh, had a discussion with the Foreign Office about my writing. I, I can't say that they were entirely supportive of my writing, and they. Um, said, you know, look, maybe it would be better if you had a, um, a pseudonym. So you know, I'm a very uh, obedient and corporate character. So I said, yeah, sure. And um, even though, of course, having a pseudonym and concealing the fact you're a diplomat was like poison for my attempts to publicize my work. Um, so because it just meant that um, you couldn't really do any publicity as yourself. Um, and you know, trying to publicize uh, books by a non-existent person is much more difficult. But anyway, I, I created this pseudonym, and I thought, uh, as you as you say, I thought, how do you how do you choose a name? And yeah. I, of course, I googled it. Um, and there's lots of stuff about how to choose a name in, on, on, on the internet, of course. And 
what informed me, so, so number one, for your first name, um, you should have something that's not too silly because people may be addressing you as this in a TV interview or a, uh, just talking to you as in your persona as that writer. Um, so that ruled out Xenophon, which was a name from another of my novels um, that I've been thinking of using. And, and they said maybe something familiar, maybe a name you don't use. So actually my full name is Robert Lee Turner. So Robert was a quite obvious one. And then for a surname, they said, again, something that's associated with you in some way, um, like somewhere that you're from or a mother's maiden name or a, a surname of somebody uh, who's related to you. Um, and they also said, um, it's good to be in the middle of the alphabet, according to one or two sites I saw, because people go into a bookshop and they go to the middle of the shelves, which is kind oh, of wow. a bit... It's kind of yeah. a bit atavistic in many ways because nobody goes into bookshops anymore. But, um, uh, you know, it's a kind of logical thing. Um, so after scratching my head a bit, I came up with PIM, which is kind of close to the middle of the alphabet. And I used to live in Pimlico. So um, that okay. was a kind of what really inspired it. Um, mm. With hindsight, I thought it was a terrible name because every time you say, my name is Robert Pym. People say, is that P-I-M-M -M or P-Y-M or how do you spell it? Um, oh, so it's a terrible name. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm quite fond of Robert Pym and my, my hotel stories, I will keep publishing under the name of Robert Pym. Well, do you then put just your real name, uh, Lee Turner, underneath or do you just keep it Robert Pym? Well, so far, it's, a, it's quite a process um, changing your mm -hmm. name. Um, as anybody can tell you who's changed their name. And um, you know, my website is full of references to Robert Pym and my books have been published under that name. My Amazon, I have a Robert Pym Amazon page, which is full of books. And I have a Lee Turner Amazon page, which only has one book on it at the moment, but will soon have more. Um, and um, so it's just a gradual process to convert okay. the names and to make clear who you are and what's going on. Mm. I mean, one of one of the problems actually is that uh, which is bugging me is that um, Robert Pym and his books have got lots of Amazon reviews, and reviews are very important on Amazon to show people that you know people are buying your books and that they're good. Um, and when I republish them as being written by Lee Turner, all those reviews disappear. So anybody oh, who's looking at this, anybody who's looking at this interview, if you see any of my name, my books published under Lee Turner, please write, please, please write okay. a review. Because <laughs> um, uh, you know, if you'd like the book, of course. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's a complicated business, but we'll get mm. that. And it takes a while, you know, like you know, it takes a while to build up this name online. Like uh, you yeah. know, I was young, yeah. so it's it's I can understand that it's quite quite tricky now to do it that way. Yeah, it's just a sort of big um, mammoth task that you do a bit of every day. Yeah. Um, but Lee, tell me, what is your wish now for the future? Mm, my wish now for the future? Well, um, I remember going on a, on, a, on a foreign office course many years ago where um, uh, it was a kind of management course. And as an icebreaker at the beginning, they got us all together and said, what is your greatest fear about the world? And most people said, oh, the Middle East conflict or a nuclear war or um, climate crisis or something. And I, and I said uh, what my first thought had been, which was, 
my greatest fear is that my relationship with my children will deteriorate from what I have now, which is a very good relationship. And as they become teenagers and adults, I'll lose that relationship. So um, quite a personal thing. And I'd still say that really, I think um, keeping strong relationships to people who matter to you are really the most important thing. And you know, while I'd be delighted to have success um, or more success as a writer, um, you know, it's those personal relationships, keeping them strong, keeping them healthy, which is most important to me. So that, that would be my main wish for the future. What a beautiful wish, really, yeah. But um, Lee, and just before we go, could you please, um, or if you want to, I see also you have on your website a list of uh, Viennese coffee houses. That you, oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So uh, I thought, because I know it's not just artists in this time who, who had a difficult time, but it's also businesses. So do you have a business or a, or a, a coffee shop that you want to just mention in this interview? Uh, uh, <laughs> well, I... Um, Let's find out what's your favorite place to go. Yeah, it's been a it's been a bind for the last two years, being very few times when you can go to a Viennese coffee shop. Um, uh, I wrote all my cafe reviews before the first lockdown, and uh, all but one, I think. And um, funnily enough, I, I started those reviews being a little bit critical of some cafes. But then I decided that as an ambassador, because I was an ambassador at the time, um, I really shouldn't be critical of any cafes. So I took out all the critical reviews and just left in the good ones. And I'd like to reintroduce some uh, some bad reviews as well, because it just that's fun. But the, um, the, the cafes I go to most often, I, I really um, like the Café Corp. That has um, a reputation as being a, a Vienna cafe where interesting people hang out. Um, and they have a downstairs lounge where I did my first reading from Blood Summit, where, oh, okay. that, um, where cultural things happen. So that's one that I'm very fond of. I love Cafe Havelka. That's always been one of my favorites. It somehow hasn't changed since the 80s or before. Um, even though it's in a very touristic part of town, it's still really urig, as they say in German. It's still very original and true. Um, I love Café Havelka. And finally, um, a cafe that some people don't like, um, but I have used to go there regularly, is the Café Bräunerhof, which is just next to the Hofburg, a very big, old-fashioned cafe. I went there with a friend back in 2016 who'd recommended it, and she said, this is my favourite cafe because it's a nice atmosphere and um, it's close to things and so on. And it was, it's not, unlike the first two, it's not obviously special. But it just has that that feeling of um, being a real Vienna coffee house. And during the lockdown, sadly, it's been closed for a long time. So I haven't seen recently whether it's opened up again. But I do hope it does, and uh, I hope it's successful. Oh yeah. I, well, I haven't been to either or to any of the ones that you mentioned now. So I'm going to try and get there and see what they are like. Right. Well, maybe we can meet in all those cafes. Yeah, that would be wonderful. We'll meet for what, uh, do, what do you usually order um, uh, when you're there? What coffee? Do you drink a melange? Ah, very good question. Well, um, 
one thing I like is that Viennese cafes, or the best of them, still use the original Viennese names for coffees, like a Melange or a Kleiner Schwarzer, Kleiner Brauner, um, and so on. They haven't been steamrolled by the juggernaut of Italian coffee designations, or the yeah. kind of new makes of coffee, like uh, you know flat whites and cappuccinos, well, not cappuccinos, but um, uh, lattes and so on, which are very popular. So, um, uh, but I, um, I'm very, um, what's the word, Catholic or eclectic in my tastes in that I drink all kinds of different drinks. Sometimes I drink a beer, sometimes I drink a hot chocolate, sometimes I um, have a, a melange, um, it, it varies. Um, oh, okay. but, um, and I also like the fact you can eat in cafes. Some of them have very good food, like Cafe England though, is another of my favorite favorites. Uh, I've eaten in there a few times, or um, uh, yeah, lots of lots of places. Cafe Spell is another that I like very much. So you just have to experiment and uh, and enjoy the best that the lovely city city of Vienna has to offer. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I love these traditional places. They have such yeah. an atmosphere yeah. that you just don't find anywhere else in the world. I think. Uh, indeed, yeah. indeed. I'm actually I'm actually um, going to be spending more time in Amsterdam as well in the future and. Uh, Okay. Amsterdam also has a great cafe tradition. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, Lee, it was so lovely to talk to you and uh, very interesting. And I'm, um, I hope to see you when you come back to Vienna. With pleasure. With pleasure. Yeah. And good luck with your project, Petra. I think it's great what you're doing. Thank and, you very uh, much. Let's stay in touch. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Lee. Have All a right. wonderful day in London. Thank you very much. The sun okay. is shining here, so that's great. All right, bye-bye. Okay, bye. -bye. okay. <laughs> bye.